inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Lights. Camera. Helen Keller. Whatever moves me, whatever thrills me, is as a hand that touches me in the dark. And that touch is my reality. Writer and activist Helen Keller. The images that we have of Helen Keller are a media creation. Gray school age Helen reads a book. The story, the overcoming, the saintly figure. She touches a heart while a crowd watches. It paints a very limited picture. At Crowded Capital, politicians unveil statue of Helen Keller. Keller attends a protest. She was such a trailblazer for so many of these civil rights and social movements. Helen Keller speaks at a microphone, smiling and confident. As an ambassador, she visits Nagasaki's atomic bomb memorial. She sits in the seat of a biplane. She traces the line of a Martha Graham dancer. A fully complex, quirky person of very firm convictions. Not perfect. Helen Keller feels the face of Henry Ford as both smile. She cradles a flower bouquet. This is the representative of what it means to be human. Closing title, Becoming Helen Keller. Text. Logo, PBS. So I caught that documentary when it aired live back in October, which was Disability Employment Awareness Month. And that um, documentary aired on PBS as, a, as its regular documentary form, but it also aired uh, with some special features, which made it accessible. The full episode came with additional accessibility features, such as extended audio descriptions from Thomas Reed, from that trailer you heard him, open captions, and ASL, descriptive uh, transcript. And it aired, as I said, PBS, and it was PBS Masters. So yeah, I caught that live, and uh, Brian watched it after the fact. After that, I wanted to do an episode about Helen Keller, and we've talked about her on Outlook before, right, Brian? Yeah, she's definitely come up in quite a few episodes uh, throughout, throughout our past year, but we really want to look deeper into her today on the show. And you'll see a side of her that you might not really know. I'm, I think this is a good way to ponder off the top of, of the show here is anyone who is listening, whether you're going to Western University or just anyone in the community, or if you're listening later as a podcast, just consider for a moment, what do you know about Helen Keller? And what have you heard about her? What have, have you learned from her throughout your life? And Carrie, you actually posted a really interesting post on Facebook before putting this episode together to get some thoughts. And I just thought that was a really great idea. Yeah, I wanted to know what people thought, and so I asked everybody on my Facebook, and I got quite a few responses, actually, Bri, uh, both from blind and sighted people, um, maybe some other people with certain dif different disabilities. Yeah, you got some really great response, really interesting stuff, and the first person who chimed in is Chris Smart, who is also blind, and he said, It saddens me that as a community, we don't have any other role models to talk about besides Helen Bloody Keller. That said, there is much about her we didn't hear in school. And that certainly isn't in the Miracle Worker movie some of us had watched. There's a lot more to her than water, water, LOL. Yeah, and so this is why I wanted to do an episode today, because 
as a woman who is blind, I have my own complicated feelings about her. And uh, it's hard for us to relate to her in a, in a lot of ways because we are blind, but we are not deaf. So we don't really know that world. And sound is so important to us. Uh, but we, um, we both had different experiences with Helen growing up ourselves. So I'll just share mine first. So I grew up uh, as a woman, I guess, as a girl, maybe I could relate better to her. Uh, she was a white woman. Uh, so am I. She was a writer. But my first experience with her was in second grade. My uh, teacher's assistant, Braille transcriber, she read me a biography about her and her teacher. I remember running out to the library right after that when, I, when she told me there was a, a movie from the 60s, so an old film, black and white, or The Miracle Worker, which most of us, I believe, have heard of and some of us have probably seen. And so that's the main image that we have of Helen Keller out, out, in, our, out in society. And that story ends when she's, you know, seven or eight years old. And she had such a full life after that. I wanted to explore it and to let people see that, yeah, she had convictions and she wasn't perfect, kind of just like me. How about you? What was your... Yeah, so just sort of referring to Chris's comment there, mm -hmm. I was the same way where I grew up just hearing about The Miracle Worker and I'd watched it. We watched it in the basement on VHS there mm -hmm. uh, growing up. And it sounds to be sort of similar experience to Chris to where it does get frustrating sometimes to think about she always gets talked about over and over and over. But the problem, I think, is that the main focus still is on this water, water and this quote unquote miracle, which we'll talk about a little bit throughout the show here that, mm -hmm. of course, humans are miracles in some ways, the things we can do. But at the end of the day, it is also just the fact that humans adapt and, and, and the senses that you do have, you, you adapt and you, you, you figure things out. So I just think, yeah, for, for me, and I like how his quote, he, he goes on to mention that there is a lot more that isn't included in the miracle worker which is what we'll be discovering on today's episode but for me it was different where i'm a male so i didn't have that connection and then i think yeah i had only seen the miracle worker i didn't read that book that you were talking about so i didn't really know anything about her after that time and also for me i'm blind but i'm not deaf so i think for me and this ties in a little bit to ableism which we've been talking about more and more on this show to where I kind of wondered, like, how is this person so inspirational if she's blind and deaf? How could she really do all these things? And I just kind of didn't, it seemed kind of beyond me back then. And I also didn't know a lot about her views. So after reading a book that uh, we talked about a lot this year on the show, Leona Godin's book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, I really did grow more of an appreciation for Helen reading the, the chapter in that book, which you'll mention later on in the show, mm -hmm. that that really spurred my interest. And then, yeah, watching this documentary really did uh, make me realize how important she really was. So mm -hmm. while, of course, we want new role models and more people to be talked about in the 20th century and beyond, mm -hmm. of course, we're going to look back in history. And at, at that time in the 1800s, when she was born in 1880, things were quite different. So it is, yeah. it is a pretty great story. And, and this documentary really, really exemplifies that. Yeah. And my other experience with Helen was, I'm not sure which book I even read of hers. In high school, for, one, for some project I did, I read either The Story of My Life or The World I Live In, one of her first few books. Uh, the Story of My Life was basically like The Miracle Worker. It was, I think that's what The Miracle Worker is based on. So it was just about her first 20 years or so, but mostly the, the inspirational scene at the water pump, which most of us have seen either in the movie or as an image somewhere. Uh, but in high school, I read one of her books and I did a project where I took construction paper and I pasted it different colors 
but at the top of the page I had a black circle. So it, I was trying to uh, sort of illustrate how how her life was sort of constricted and small, and she couldn't communicate, and she was stuck in her own head and body before Ann Sullivan came into her life as a teacher. And so then I and then I put different perfume on the thing to bring out the different scents, and I. So I used her quotes and things, and so I really, um, I got to learn about her writing, and as a writer, she has been inspiring to me all my life as, as I advanced in my own writing. But as for media uh, interpretations, there's been so many that have been so off, and uh, one I came across recently, I don't even know what show it was in now, but some fictional show I came across said something like, you're as perceptive as Helen Keller, meaning sarcastically, right? So people sort of diminish her abilities, but we're trying to shed some light here, as, as we say. Yeah, and it's these, we talk about on this show, blind jokes and all of these things, Helen Keller jokes. It's just, those are the things we don't want to live on and people forget her life. And the, the fact is, this, this miracle worker of her, her childhood is so documented, but the stuff after that isn't talked about enough. And that's why this documentary is so great. Back when she was alive, there had been a New York Times editorial and it, its headline was, Blind Leading the Blind. And we're going to actually have a show about her teacher, Anne Sullivan, in the new year sometime because she was blind herself. And she kind of had to hide that and push into the background that stuff because if it had been too prominent, people wouldn't have taken her seriously as a teacher. Uh, but, but as we say, the blind do, do lead the blind. We talk about that all the time on Outlook. You know, you and I help each other out all the time. We, we've met so many people through this Canadian Federation of the Blind in the last four or five years and other, th other friends and things who have taught us so much, and we learn from each other, and that's what the blind leading the blind means. It, it actually is actually... Yeah, you learn from each other like any community out there, and, mm -hmm. and that's why it's one of those things. It's just such a stereotype, and it's so ingrained in, in society, and it's the same with these jokes, these Helen Keller jokes and stuff. It's, it's easy to make a quick joke about that, but... And of course, we're, we don't want to come across like we're all serious, and, and yeah. uh, so uh, the odd joke is fine, but it's like there's more to it, and uh, honestly, a lot of the things aren't necessarily that funny. No. So I just, I, I really don't want her to live on like that. And I think as long as more documentaries like this continue to be, to be released and, and out in the public, I think that will change over time and she won't just be remembered for those jokes, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And as we had a guest recently, Heather, who said the same thing, that they're just not so funny anymore. They're, they've all been done. Yeah. Can only go so far with, with some sort of lowbrow blindness joke. If you know us and you know the show, um, you'll know that we have a sense of humor. It's, it's yeah, not like, like if I'm with know. my friends and they ever make some sort of a little joke occasionally, it's fine because we know it's all in good fun. But and they've just... taken the time to get to know you as a person, so it's good. Right, it's not as offensive as if but it's if you, just some if stranger. You don't, and... If you don't know many blind, if you don't know blind people, you know, watch what you're saying. Yeah, because you never know one could be right next to you and you wouldn't know. But all the media representation is just one of those things we still talk about today with with blindness and and then the. Yeah, there's this, the statue, Carrie, if you want to talk briefly about that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in the Capitol in Washington, D.C., in October 7th in 2009, there was a, a statue that was unveiled. It was a 600-pound bronze sculpture of a child standing next to the water pump. So it was supposed to represent Helen, right? And uh, so there was a senator who made a bit of a speech at that unveiling, if you want to. Bob Riley. Take it away, right? Yeah, so we'll be doing a few quotes throughout today's show, and... I'll be taking some of the, the male quotes. So Bob Riley said that this extraordinary person showed us the power of a determined human spirit and reminded all of us that courage and strength can exist in the most unlikely places. My issue with that quote is just that, you know, it, it becomes, as we say the term, it becomes inspiration porn. 
for all of us. And that term, I don't believe, existed back when Helen was alive. Right. But it's, it's, it's well documented now that it does. Uh, and that's sort of all you get from some, a statement like that. And, and it just feels like someone like him might not have looked any deeper. Uh, and yeah, so we like want to still... show that she was not perfect. Right. And you're still focusing on that early scene when she was only eight years old from The Miracle Worker. Where, and that's, that happened, of course, and that's, that's, that's awesome. But there's just so much more after that. And so, yeah, referring back to the, that Facebook post that you, uh, you put up and we, you got such great responses. There was somebody else who, who commented named Kimberly Elkins. And perhaps you want to read what she said, Care. Mm -hmm. She said, I wish more people knew about Laura Bridgman, the first deafblind person to learn language 50 years before Helen Keller. She paved the way and yet was forgotten when the more attractive, vivacious Helen came along. Helen was initially called the next Laura Bridgman, a lot to live up to at the time, I'm sure. Yeah. And Laura was considered the second most famous woman in the world in the mid-19th century, second only to Queen Victoria. So uh, if you know the history of the Perkins School in Boston, where Helen and Annie both did attend, uh, you will know of Laura Bridgman, but it was interesting to get those responses and to have one of them mention Laura because I didn't bring her up. Um, this this woman did for sure, and I hadn't. I wasn't really familiar with Laura Bridgman myself, so it is interesting to think about who ends up getting sort of recognized in history and and who sort of gets more overlooked if someone else comes along. And it's just it's great to bring up uh, Laura as well. Mm -hmm. The years where Laura Bridgman was, she lived at Perkins all her life, and she had a different personality than Helen, as as Kim sort of ex illustrated there. Uh, but Charles Dickens actually visited Perkins uh, and visited and met Laura. And uh, he wrote a book called American Notes of 1842. And Laura Bridgman, had, uh, she had been born in December of 1829. So that book was out there. So in 1880, when, when Helen Keller was born, she had, was born sighted and with hearing. And then in, around her 19th month, she suffered some sort of a, an illness. They, I think they're thinking it was probably meningitis. And so she has... I think she grew up with some sort of memories of seeing and hearing, but when you lose that at 19 months, right, that's, a, that's pretty early. Yeah, it's still pretty early, but you do pick up things that, by that point already. So some of that did carry over probably throughout her life that she did have some memory from, from that time, even though she was quite young. Mm -hmm. So as I said, she was born in 1880 in Tuscumbia, Alabama. So she was a white woman in the South. Her family weren't, weren't wealthy, but they lived on, uh, on land and their, their home was called Ivy Green. And so her father fought in the Confederate Army. That's the side that lost in the Civil War. And so the years after the Civil War, they, they got difficult sometimes for, for the South. So her family worked hard, but they, they didn't know what to do when their daughter began to struggle. And they had these things called home signs at the time for her first years of life. So they were able to communicate with her somewhat, but outside of the family, she just wouldn't be able to communicate. And it, it, she just became more and more frustrated and more and more... Uh, they had more and more behavioral issues with her and started referring to her as wild and things, which is hard because she was a child who was just locked in her head and frustrated and wanted to communicate but didn't know how and they didn't know how to help her. And like we said, times were different then. You know, certain terms that might come up throughout today's show are a little bit graphic or outdated. I mean, wild is not something you should really call, call a person. Mm -hmm. That's it's more of a term that would be used for, for an animal, right? And it's just... Yeah. Helen's mother stumbled across this book by Charles Dickens. And it was because she was looking way for ways to help her daughter, but she didn't want to have to send her to an institution or an asylum, which is often what you did with children with disabilities at that time. So uh, that was really great that she looked beyond that. And she 
So she found the book and then she realized, oh, I should contact Perkins. And uh, she spoke with the, the head of Perkins School, M Mr. Anagnos, and he uh, sent her Anne Sullivan. So Anne Sullivan was born in 1866. So by the 1880s, she got into Perkins and uh, she ended up being the valedictorian. So she was top of her class and a smart girl in her own right. And uh, he thought she might be the perfect person to teach Helen when others might have thought, how is this girl who has her own blindness issues going to teach? But as we see, it worked out. And it wasn't a miracle. It was just... It's the determination yeah. of, of, of humans. And, and if you repeat something over and over and over, like I think originally some people said, Helen was a parrot, just mm -hmm. sort of mimicking what people were doing, which of course, if, if, you've, if anyone listening has had children themselves, you know, in the beginning, that's how anyone learns. You, you mimic and you copy, but the more you do that, eventually it sticks and you, and you do you do retain that information and you you do are able to learn things and humans are are fascinating we are fascinating i i would say and there's just so many things we we do adapt and we and we figure out when we have to survive and we have to figure out ways how to how to grow and and learn and uh yeah and there's a line world. from the miracle worker where annie says there's nothing wrong with that that mind it works like a mouse trap <laughs> it's just the family thought why are you teaching her all these words? She doesn't understand what you're talking about. It's like speaking to a fence post. And that was just their own. That's another, yeah. It's sort of comparing that to her an object when she's mm -hmm. a human. And of course, she's, her development is slowed down and things take a bit longer, but it doesn't mean she still can't retain things. And, you know, we have five senses, so she can't see or hear. She still has three senses. Plus the brain, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the brain is a whole other complex thing. So, yeah. Yeah, so Annie arrived in March of 1887, which is exactly 100 years before you were born, Bri, basically. Yeah, hard <laughs> to imagine. History is always fascinating to me, but also kind of confusing to imagine those times and being around back then. And, and all this stuff so far we're talking about is in The Miracle Worker, but we do want to give a summary of her early life before we do get into some of the later stuff. And I'm also, mm -hmm. we're not sure how many people listening have seen The Miracle Worker or how much you, everyone knows about her. So I think it's important to give this little summary here to start off. Yeah. So one of the earliest observations that Annie had of Helen were, um, she said, somehow I had expected to see a pale, delicate child, but there's nothing pale or delicate about Helen. She was scrappy and so was Annie. So they made an interesting pair, I think. So she said, I appreciate the kind things Mr. Anagnos has said about Helen and me, but his extravagant way of saying them rubs me the wrong way. The truth is not wonderful enough to suit the newspapers, so they enlarge upon it and invent ridiculous embellishments. So, right, she, she was under a lot of pressure, Anne Sullivan. Uh, the school was watching her, and, and it was going to be a reflection on them how well she did with this child, and so that must have been a lot of pressure. And we were talking earlier how back in those days, I mean, of course, there's always something to, as far as distractions and stuff, but there was a lot less back then, so it just, mm -hmm. it goes to show that she was there to, to do a job to help Helen, and they really worked hard at it. And if you really are determined and you really put all your energy and time into something, it, it does pay off. So that was really demonstrated in, in Helen's early life there up until her age of eight when she, when we did have that famous water pump scene that, that actually happened in real life back in the, in the 1880s. So it only took a few months between her arriving there and, and the water pump scene where if you think about something in your own life that you've been working towards and all the practice it may have taken you and all the all the nights and you'd stayed up learning it and practicing and then one minute in one moment you just get it something clicks if you remember what that feels like that must have been what it was like when she finally realized that these 
these movements that this person's making in my hands that that she's spelling something and that's what this water is that's rushing over my hand so it just came to her and it didn't take very long so right you start off with with the home signs and just these very very specific signs that they create and then from there when you have have a proper teacher who knows sign language from there you you are learning the actual letters and you and you feel them you know she can't see but she's still feeling using her sense of touch to to feel annie's hands to 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 retain this information and you just do it over and over and over and it eventually it does click moving beyond the miracle worker here's how helen experienced her world my hand is to me what you're hearing in sight are to you my world is built of touch the delicate tremble of a butterfly's wings in my hand the clear, firm outline of a face and limb, and a thousand resultant combinations which take shape in my mind constitute my world. And I always say that that's kind of easy for me to relate to in a way because I've lost a lot of sight since childhood, and it's been hard, and sometimes I don't admit to myself how hard it is, but my brain really has adapted, and that shows how powerful the brain is, that I've made connections, and I, I, I see things differently in my head than I used to see them with my eyesight as a child. and. So I really, I really could relate with that quote there. By age eight, they sent Helen to Perkins with Annie accompanying her. So Annie got to return to the school she'd just graduated from, basically. She started, at this point, she started to get to some media attention. And one of the people who seemed to flock to her, wanting to get to know her, was Alexander Graham Bell, who most of us should know, you know, that's, that was the inventor of the telephone. But uh, you might not know that he was actually married to a, a deaf woman. And so he... His life was really devoted to the education of children who are deaf. And uh, it's controversial because he believed in something called oralism, which we're going to get into here. The first big thing that came into Helen's life, the question that she struggled with all her life, actually. Yeah, so we're going to do a little bit of a reenactment of a discussion that, uh, that Helen had with Alexander Graham Bell when he came to visit her at Perkins. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to play Alexander Graham Bell. I invented the <laughs> telephone, everyone. Wow. And... Uh, I wonder so, what Alexander Graham Bell would think of iPhones. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so yeah, me playing a character of, of, of uh, Alexander Graham Bell here. Speaking to Carrie, who's playing Helen on the show today. Do you know what a cloud is? Rain. What is wind? It is wild air. What is thought? When we make a mistake, we say, I thought it was right. Where is your thought? mind my head is full of mind so yeah that's where so they they had this communication and 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 they would have been signing right Mm -hmm. when they were doing it at this point he was one of the people that started encouraging her that she should learn how to speak if she wanted to communicate with the wider world right and that's what you were talking about with the the controversial thing to where alexander graham bell was very focused on communication and speaking and and this is the whole discussion between adapting the world to to fit everyone's disabilities and diversities or adapting our diversities to fit the world and that's just not i think the world is more interesting if if we create this diversity and have these different experiences and you could hear from helen's such eloquent way of wording things that she did have quite an interesting perspective that she wouldn't have had if she wasn't deaf and blind and these things just you sometimes forget that you think oh things need to be quote-unquote normal in in a world when when really that's boring and, and these, this is what creates unique people and, and perspectives out there. And uh, so it is unfortunate that he was so set on this, this speech because we're going to play a, a clip now of Annie explaining to uh, 
how she taught Helen vibrations and, and, uh, and how people spoke. And I let her see by putting her hand on my face how we talked with our mouths. She felt the vibration of the spoken word. Instantly, she spelled, I want to talk with my mouth. That seemed impossible. But after experimenting for a time, we found that placing her hand in this position, the thumb resting on the throat, right at the larynx, the first finger on the lips, the second on the nose, we found that she could feel the vibration of spoken words. I had known for a long time that people around me used a method of communication different from mine. One who is entirely dependent on the manual alphabet has always a sense of restraint and narrowness. My thoughts would often rise up and beat like birds against the wind, and I persisted in using my lips and voice. So imagine the pressure she felt, and it was hard work to try and do that. Your vocal cords just don't form in the same way, and it must have been really, really, really difficult. Right, and again, she's just trying to fit in and wants to do what everyone else does, but sometimes doing things differently makes things more interesting, and, and it give, brings in different perspectives. So it's, it's that weird balance that I, I still think it's, it's better if the world sort of adjusts and, and doesn't just require everyone to do things one way. Like, it reminds me of this whole debate we're just dealing with now about whether Braille is still relevant. And you and I believe it totally is and never should go away ever, ever. But some people think, you know, no sighted people can't read Braille. So why continue this form of communication? It's the same with sign language. And, and people today who are deaf uh, really struggle with that, I, 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 from what I've heard of the documentary and all that. So. Yeah. But I think this also is maybe where the, that whole thing about, oh, you must want to feel my face comes from. Because Helen, being blind and deaf, she did. And at the time was pressured to learn how to speak, and that's how she did it. And she but, was also really close and intimate with Annie, because Annie was her teacher. So she had to get closer up, just not being able to, to talk or hear or, or see mm-hmm. at that point, really, that she had to get up and close and, and personal. And, and yeah, that movie was so popular that at the time that I think that image probably did you know, get embedded in a lot of people's consciousness from, from that movie and just learning about Helen Keller in the past and... That sort of translates over to, to blindness in general, where most, in most cases, blind people don't really care to, care to feel someone else's face. But mm-hmm. if you can't hear the tone in someone's voice when they're smiling, maybe it, maybe it is a bit more of an advantage to, to get that idea of someone's face. Yeah, I often say I can hear when someone's smiling, and she didn't have that. So. Right. But also, it leads into the fact that when she was a bit older, she replaced both her eyes with glass eyes. And of course, they were glass at the time. I like to point out that now they are made of something else entirely. And... Uh, Here's another place I can relate with her because I, I had my left eye removed at age 12 and mine was not just for cosmetic purposes. Mine was medically, I had a condition that was causing me a lot of pain, but same thing about, I now wonder with my artificial eye, sometimes I feel like a bit of a freak and people, some people think it's cool and some people don't. And so the fact that she did that for cosmetic reasons, it was another time where she felt she had to fit in and be normal and look normal. So she got a lot of, you know, a lot of media coverage and she wanted to look normal yeah and that's the i always think about the glass eye and it's hard to imagine what that would have been like back in the day Mm -hmm. made out of glass but yeah now we're going to kind of start to move on a little bit more away from from her growing up and and uh get more into her adult life and and 
I guess she's still pretty young at this point. Well, but, it's basically the end of her her innocence. Right. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. So we're going to talk now about the first sort of big controversy that, that, that came about after this fantasized time of her life where she was this quote-unquote miracle. And then, and then she started to, to, to use her independence and uh, speak out a bit more. So mm -hmm. This is something most people haven't heard of. When she was 10 years old, she wrote a story for the director of the school, Michael Anagnos. And she sent it to him. So here's a bit of a, uh, an excerpt from that. She called it King Frost. King Frost, like all other kings, has great treasures of gold and silver. But as he is a generous old monarch, he endeavors to make a right use of his riches. And so she sent him that story and he was impressed that this child who just a couple years before couldn't communicate was writing that kind of a story with the imagination. So he published it, and then a, I think a deaf magazine or newspaper picked it up. And then somebody noticed that it had a striking comparison to another story that was already out there called Frost Fairies, and that was by a woman named Margaret Canby. And so this whole scandal broke out, and they started an investigation into Helen and to Anne to figure out if maybe Helen was actually a fraud. Had, had Annie just been telling her what to say and sort of making her parrot things that weren't actually coming from Helen's own mind? So yeah, this was hard on her. You know, she was questioned and and it, it was never really resolved. When you're a child, you, you might pick up things from your consciousness and then maybe it was read to her by Annie when she was younger. And it's, it's just one of those things that, sure, you might take little bits from something else and not even realize it. And it's also like when you're, when you're a child, you're, you generally are innocent for the most part. And, you, and then when you get called out and someone says, oh, you're, you're lying or you did this and that, you, you kind of get pushed into a corner and, and it's... You could, you could see how that would have affected her throughout her life. And, and this really did break her, break her innocence there. So, mm -hmm. And it was never proven either way, right? But yeah, when you're right. that age, especially because she was learning so much so, later, so much later in life than most of us, she, she was still developing. And so who knows in her memory what was going on there and what she was able to... It, sh it probably shows that she had a very, a very good memory. But. Yeah, so we're talking about Helen Keller today on Outlook with a recent documentary put out on the PBS network. Gonna take a quick break here now on Outlook and we'll be back with more Keller Talk. Outlook. On Radio Western. For a long time, when I wrote a letter, even to my mother, I was seized with a sudden feeling of terror, and I would spell the sentences over and over to make sure that I had not read them in a book. Helen Keller. And that just really demonstrates in that quote what we were talking about before the break on how, as a child, you take things, I mean, anyone does no matter what age, but especially when you're that young and you're so impressionable that when you're, when you're called out for something that you likely didn't do, you feel so worried and, and you take it so seriously and then you just, you get obsessive. You're like, I've got to make sure this doesn't happen again. So you can just, mm -hmm. that really demonstrates how it, much it did affect her at the time. And it's just, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, and as we say, this puts an end to her innocence as she, she didn't stay long at Perkins because of this whole scandal, and she ended up going off and getting educated elsewhere. And uh, by the year 1900, she wanted to go to college, and she made that happen. I have found that I cannot always put my hand in another's with a trustful spirit. Yet I know that goodness is mightier than evil, and my heart still tells me that love is the most beautiful thing in the world and must triumph in the end. And so, you know, there were a lot of people who became very invested in Helen Keller. And um, a lot of men, like we're going to talk about this episode included, 
the, the you know the head of Perkins, uh, Alexander Graham Bell. They all had intentions and they all had perspectives about how she should live her life, and so that did have influences on her, of course. But in the end, she wanted to go to college and she made it happen, and so she couldn't go to Harvard like she I think might have wanted to. But she was a smart girl. By that point, I think she could read and write in English, French, German, and Latin. So that's impressive. Yeah, and we said she already she already knew Braille, so she was keeping up on things. And I don't know when she, she got papers and stuff from all around the world to to read up on events, and just mm-hmm. was very educated and aware of a lot so many things. And and uh, we'll get into some more of those social issues coming up. But mm-hmm. yeah, so applying to getting into college and stuff, and then an issue with that is that it it, it costs a lot of money. And you know, we said that her family wasn't super wealthy. Nope. So they had to. Um you know, reach out to friends, including Mark Twain at this point. And he uh, helped organize, uh, there, was, there was a community, a, a bunch of women in the community who were t- fundraising for Helen. Uh, and so Mark Twain uh, made a, a pitch for her to go to Radcliffe College. Yeah, so I get to be another famous person from, from history <laughs> here and play the part of Mark Twain, who would say that it won't do for America to allow this marvelous child to retire from her studies because of poverty. If she can go on with them, she will make a fame that will endure in history for centuries. Along her special lines, she is the most extraordinary product of all the ages. Yeah, so imagine all that being said about you when you're still just barely a child. Yeah, and she has gone on for she has. for so, you know, centuries to But one writer to another, I think he saw that in her that she had the gift of being a writer and so she learned, I think, early on in life, though she had the privilege of being white uh, in the South, uh, she had the, the experience of poverty throughout her life, which sort of led her into the advocacy and, and some of the beliefs she had and the convictions she had. Helen graduated from Radcliffe College, and she wasn't able to go to Harvard, as we said, because back then suffragists were just out there protesting, trying to get women the vote, right? So it was women weren't even allowed to go to college in most instances. They weren't. They weren't. Nobody wanted to hear from women. They were expected to be quiet and just be mothers and wives. And that, if that wasn't going to be Helen's path, she wanted to do more than that. So she graduated from Radcliffe with a Bachelor of Arts in 1904. And by that point, she had started writing articles that were going to be turned into a book, The Story of My Life. And she needed some help to organize her thoughts. Uh, so they, they brought in a man named John Macy to do that. But this is right around the time when she discovered socialism, which we're still talking about today. And it led her to some of her most um, intense d- beliefs that we'll explore in the second half here. Yeah, so we're going to get into some of those beliefs, but we're going to start with a, a, a quote from, uh, from, a bit, from a bit later now. We're going to jump, jump ahead a few years into the, into the 1920s. And Professor of Disability Studies, History and Women's and Gender Studies, Dr. Kim Nielsen, said the following. I came across lists from 1924 of what some people called the 10 most dangerous women in America. And Helen Keller was on this list. And I actually remember laughing out loud. And I wanted to know why. And I I do too. I would have too. Yeah. And it's again, at that that point, she was speaking out a lot more about about social issues and so much going on. And and at the time, like you said, it's people, it was was quite the controversy for, for a woman to be speaking out like that. But also the fact that she was blind and deaf that caused some 
you know, some people also were just like, well, she's not as much of a threat. So she can talk about certain issues that other people didn't get away with. So it, yeah, she got away with things, but also, you know, she was sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. You still you get away with those things, but then doesn't still mean that people don't react still and and turn on you um, from as soon as you have an opinion. Right. It's you're going away from that inspirational child that, whoa, she learned how to say water. That's a um, quote unquote miracle. To, to this independent thinking woman who's, who has all these views. Mm-hmm. So another pr- woman who spoke out on my Facebook when I asked the question, Kitty Stryker, she commented, I remember learning about her socialist activism in the Heretics Handbook of Quotations and from there reading her work. It's a big collection of quotes, many of which are socialists, anarchists, and communists, but not exclusively. It was an entry point to leftist thought for me. So that was an interesting perspective that leads into what we're talking about here. So then Helen was asked, how did you become a socialist? And she said, how? By reading. How does anybody get educated and, and learn new things? Exactly, yeah. So. so yeah, so the years after she graduated from Radcliffe, uh, she had this man, John Macy, coming in and he edited her book for her, which led into her becoming a, somewhat of a public speaker and t- touring around the country speaking about her life and blindness. And then uh, that sort of took us into the, into the teens. So the wor- First World War was sort of coming up here. And by this point, Annie was getting older and they needed someone else to sort of come in and, and sort of sub for her <laughs> at certain points. So they found a young woman named Polly Thompson who was uh, an immigrant from Scotland. And she sort of took over when Annie needed some breaks. Helen's feeling was something like, how I feel now, Brian, it's just like, it can't be unreasonable, she said, to ask of a society a fair chance for all. It can't be unreasonable to demand the protection of women and children and an honest wage for all. When shall we learn that we are all related, one to the other, that we are all members of one body? I couldn't have said it better myself, but I just, I feel the same way, especially these days with with so much individuality and everyone talking about their rights and all this kind of stuff to where we do still live in a society where we all do need to work together. And in the world in general, we, of course, we're all different and we all have different diversities and, and beliefs and all these things. But at the end of the day, we are all human and we do have that in common. So it is really important that we work together. And those are the things that really gained me so much more respect for, for Helen Keller when I, when I found out certain things that she, that she wrote, like that quote you just read there, Care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, she'd go on to fight for workers' rights and... Racial issues, which were happening at the time and still are happening today. But um, her thoughts on feminism were something like this, that this inferiority of women is man-made. And again, you know, the angry feminist reputation, but really, you know, I can't imagine what it was like back then when women weren't even really in college very often. Yeah, so that's why this is still really fascinating to think about Helen back in those days who was blind and, and, and deaf and was speaking out so much for a woman in those times it's, it is quite fascinating to think about and uh yeah you mentioned her work with race relations through the NAACP which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People of course another one of those words that's coming up from these times that mm-hmm. yeah we don't you don't say colored people today, but anymore they do, but they do still call it the NAACP they do yeah they didn't change the name like so she was a white woman and she, was, she wasn't living in the South anymore, but her family were there and she'd go back to visit and she saw what was happening with the Jim Crow laws and the lynching. So she said, I am indeed wholeheartedly with you. This great republic of ours is a mockery when citizens in any section are denied the rights the Constitution guarantees them. 
when they are openly evicted, terrorized, and lynched by prejudiced mobs, and their persecutors and murderers are allowed to walk abroad unpunished. So yeah, from there, that's where the news started to turn on her, and you'd get certain headlines and, and editors saying things like, Helen Keller preaching on the merits of socialism. Helen Keller sneering at the Constitution. Helen Keller on these aspects is pitiful, said one editorial. So you can just really see how this, this is what I've talked about a, a few minutes ago, about how these people turned on, who were, on her who originally were so, you know, inspired and all this stuff when she was a child. And it's also just it, was a, it made a good news story right back then. But these things are a little more controversial. So this is where things did start to change for sure. Yeah, so she said she commented on the phrase the exploitation of poor Helen Keller because a lot of people in the media and elsewhere thought that maybe Annie was telling her what to think or maybe this John Macy was telling her what to think. And uh, that was, you know, that just wasn't true. Yeah, and if you're surrounded with these people that you need to, to be able to interpret and, and to help you get through the day and, and, and communicate and all these things, they're so close to you that sometimes people think that, oh, maybe mm -hmm. they're putting off their thoughts on you and all this. But she was such an independent thinking thinking woman and and, and as, as if you study this stuff more you'll realize that you know Annie didn't agree with all of Helen's beliefs and stuff so the, nope. they were still d two different people but it talked about the media would talk about her being exploited by all these by Annie or by whomever and she would she just said something like I'm glad if it knows what the word exploitation means sort of being sarcastic which I liked about her too about the media you know helped feed into all that all all the time so so they also said if she is ashamed of her Southland, why call their dollars? Meaning she had books out and she was on tour in the South and people were paying to see her and read her words. And, and then it's like, well, so how dare you speak about how we're running our states or our country? And it's like, for sure, she's right. a citizen deserving to speak like anyone else. Exactly. But it was nice to see that many years later, NAACP founder W.E.B. Du Bois applauded her conviction. And he would go on to say that Keller was in her own state, Alabama, being feted and made much of by her fellow citizens. And yet, courageously and frankly, she spoke out on the inequity and foolishness of the color line. It cost her something to speak. And then uh, I'll get Carrie to play Helen again and uh, you can uh, speak. So this is what led her into her activism work, which we'll explore for the rest of the episode. She said... Although I didn't know it at the time, the curtain rose on my life's work. So sometimes we get, we get pushed into something that we didn't necessarily intend. I don't know what kind of writer she wanted to be. I think she wanted to be a serious journalist who would write about all kinds of things. And as we say today, even journalists with disabilities are often sort of pigeonholed. And so she never got to write as she, I think, wanted. And so she became an activist and she became still her beliefs. But she ended up doing some stuff that Sometimes she had to do it for money and just to survive. So, And then we get into certain topics like eugenics, which is another very controversial sort of topic. And this is one of Helen's views that, again, we don't know kind of what throughout the rest of her life, what maybe she if she changed her, her, her opinions on this. But there's another quote, Carrie, that I think you're going to read here that it gives an example of one of her views that is a little bit more radical and maybe don't, we don't quite agree with. But she was also younger when she said this. So who knows? So around... Uh, 1915, the media uh, came to her about one story about, I think, a, a severely disabled child. And uh, she had some thoughts on that. Uh, she said, It is the possibilities of happiness, intelligence, and power that give life its sanctity, and they are absent 
in the case of a poor, misshapen, paralyzed, unthinking creature. And, right, some people probably thought her life wasn't worth living. And she, she couldn't relate with this child with all these extra disabilities she didn't have. So for her, I think at this point, she just thought maybe this child is not, is not having a, a life. And uh, she said that, and we'll never really probably know how she maybe really felt. But. Right, and it's one of those things, again, if it's your own experience and, and you've, you've, you have managed and found ways around things and, and you do have a, a, a full life that you enjoy, it's hard to, it, you know, you're going to stand up for people that, that have that. Whereas somebody else that might have other afflictions that you're not familiar with, for you, that might be like, wow, how could they in, enjoy life? When really, mm-hmm. it, is a, it is a question that can get difficult, especially for certain people that, you know, I don't know. It's just, Ethics. It's, and, yeah, it's, yeah. A whole, it's a whole other discussion who, for another time. Who gets time, to make that decision? It's just one of those things that she said that was, could be considered controversial for mm-hmm. sure. Though back then, a lot of people, and even today, you know, some people might still think the same way. So, yeah. So by World War I, uh, she had some thoughts on war also, and I could really relate with this. She said, I used to wake suddenly from a frightful dream of sweat and blood and multitudes shot, killed, crazed, and go to sleep only to dream of it again. My teacher and I were both worn out, but I was determined to do and say my utmost against militarism, which, you know, that's what I... I think today she was considered a pacifist, and I think that's what I am also. Sometimes, like we say in World War II, things are unavoidable, but for World War I, it was a bit of a different story. Certain circumstances, it, it might be unavoidable, but still, it's something we should really strive to, to eliminate. And I, I know that's a, that's a long ways away, but it's one of those things. But now we're going we're gonna to go from war to love, yeah. to, to romantic love. Yeah, so she wasn't a fighter, she was a lover, but... Yeah. Um, so back in 1905, this John Macy, who was, helping, uh, uh, who was helping Helen edit her book, he and Annie, I guess, fell in love. And there's always rumors that go around today that it wasn't Annie and him that were in love. It was Helen and John Macy, but they couldn't come out in public and announce that. But, th- you know, that's probably not true. Because <laughs> uh, Helen, from what we know of her life, had very little experience with romantic love. But she did have a little. Right. There's one experience that... You can elaborate on a little bit mm-hmm. here from what we do know about it. But unfortunately, again, at that time, she, she almost did get married. But again, her family intervened and, and put a stop to it because, again, it's still that ableism that's, that's ingrained in, in society to where, you know, then she'd go on and have her own more independence and, and that they would lose some control and they, and they didn't want that. Well, that scared them and they didn't know what that could mean or, you know, she'll get hurt or who knows what their reasons were. But this was around 19... 19- 15, 1916. And so this was at a time when Annie Sullivan was unwell and went away to recover. So Helen stayed back with this man named Peter Fagan. He became her assistant of sorts. He learned to sign. He could communicate with her directly. So he was a young journalist and uh, he was helping her out at the time. And they they fell in love, it's, it's said. And they went off to get a marriage license in secret. But of course, the media found out and uh, everybody put a stop to it. So then she sort of backed down and it never went anywhere. So she said, since my youth, I have desired the love of a man. Why was I tantalized with bodily capabilities I could not fulfill? I no longer cry for the spoiled treasures of womanhood. I face consciousness with strong sex urge of my nature and turn that life energy into channels of satisfying sympathy and work, which is what she did for the rest of her life. So that's kind of sad, huh? And if you read Leona's book, Their Plant Eyes, 
Uh, there's a whole chapter called Helen Keller in Vaudeville and in Love, and it really explores that further. After that all ended, World War I came to an end. They still needed to make money, so they were on the lecture circuit, uh, and then they would go on to Vaudeville for a couple years. But that was a, a good gig that Helen wanted to do, and she kind of had to drag Annie along. Uh, so they only had to perform like 20 minutes twice a day. It was good pay for, for the work they did. And so they used to get a lot of interesting questions when they would perform on stage. Um, they would ask her, like, do you believe in ghosts? And I like that question in a way, because I think Helen as a ghost has lingered uh, since her death. And we're sort of still dealing with that, which is what this episode's kind of about. Uh, but they also, the audience asked her once, can you tell when the audience applauses? And Helen said, Oh, yes, I hear it with my feet. I like to feel the warm tide of human life pulsing around and around me. To weep at its sorrows, be annoyed by its foibles, and laugh at its absurdities. Yeah, so that again just really demonstrates the senses and how much you still can pick up. And the vaudeville for her, I think, was just something totally different. She was, before that, was advocating and going around and more so lecturing, whereas, as this was just more of a sort of a fun sort of spectacle kind of event. And, and I don't know, I think it, it could have been sort of an interesting time for her, and it's interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. And most people don't know about that. So Yeah, it's one of those areas you could look more into, for sure. But so when her vaudeville time came to an end, the American Foundation for the Blind came knocking at her door, which is one of the first, I believe, the first blindness organization in the States, and now there are multiple ones, as right. we talk about on Outlook all the time. But the AFB well, wanted her as a sort of a spokesperson but then they found it really complicated when she started, when she would continue to share her views, which are often controversial, that they didn't always want her to speak. But she had to do these pitches. Uh, she, it was good pay and everything, but then she had to go speak to like Lions Clubs and things. And she had to say things to them to get their money. She had to say things like, try to imagine how you would feel if you were suddenly stricken blind. Picture yourself stumbling and groping at noonday, your work, your independence gone. And it's just, it's really hard to hear that she had to say stuff like that to, to make a living and to get people to open up their wallets. And those are the things that we've, we've talked about on this show quite a bit that, that still, do on, still do go on today to a point with organizations here in Canada, such as the CNIB, where you do feel like sometimes they're still trying to, to pull at people's heartstrings to say, oh, these, you know, the poor blind people. And that, that goes back to pity and all these things that we're really trying to, to get away from in the world and realize that we all have strengths and, and everyone has something to contribute. and. And uh, it's just, it's sad that that's what gets donations and gets support is, is, uh, is sort of pity. And, and yeah, we, we just wish, you know, stuff like what we're doing here got is what got people to donate money in a way, because at least we're, we're sharing our own voices and we're being heard. Yeah, for sure. Educating and, and uh, bringing these things into people's awareness that they might not even consider prior. No. So. But going into the 30s, she, as, she met a lot of the presidents, including uh, Roosevelt. And uh, his wife, Eleanor, who was a, an activist and a, and a feminist in her own right. And she wrote, my husband knew what it was to face a handicap and conquer it. I thought how wonderfully both Miss Keller and my husband typified triumph over physical handicap. And there again, the word handicap, which was acceptable at the time. But it goes back to this whole American dream about if you just work hard enough and overcome your disability, which, of course, he didn't. He had polio and he struggled with that all his life. Uh, but he was still able to be the president, so. Yeah, it's still another one of those frustrating things that's out there about just overcoming this disability instead of living with it and accepting it and, and celebrating it to a point to, that you are unique and it brings a different perspective to things that you, you wouldn't get without those disabilities. So it's just, it's kind of trying to look positive on things and not just to always take this negative or sort of we have to cure everything and, and stuff like that. So it's a, 
it's another interesting discussion. Yeah, the medical versus social model of disability is what we talk about now. Right. So then, uh, unfortunately, you know, big of events happen and things change. And, and uh, Annie passing away there in the 30s, her, her teacher in 1936. Mm-hmm. And she had something to say after that. Obviously, it had a major effect on her. She wasn't working with her as much in the later years there. Um, she was working with that lady, Polly, but still, they were, they were very close, right? So. Mm-hmm. so imagine what that was like when she had to grieve the loss of Annie. So she said, reintegrating my life so shaken and lacerated by teachers going, it is as if all objects dear to my touch and paths familiar to my feet have vanished. And then, of course, Nazi, Nazism, the Nazis came into power and in World, World War, War II. II. Yeah. And her books were... were had German publishers, right? So they were starting to censor her work and she told them, you know, then please stop selling my books. And then they started burning her books. And if she had been, you know, over there in Europe during World War II, she might have been someone that the the Nazis just murdered because she was blind and deaf. And so it goes back to the whole thing about eugenics and... And And she did write, I think, at least a dozen books in her life that were published. So it's just, it is amazing to think how how many things she did write and... And, uh, you know, most of those I haven't read, and some of them are really hard to find now. These book burnings obviously destroying a lot of the copies. But So another interesting thing about Helen is she did a ton of traveling and really traveled around the world to, to so many different countries. And after World War II, Carrie, she went to Japan. So I think this is an interesting part we should definitely we should talk about here on, on today's show. Yeah, so she did a lot, with obviously, with, with soldiers coming back with injuries and disabilities of all kinds, but specifically of the newly blinded and deafened. Helen referred to a lot of these disabled soldiers as my comrades along the roads of darkness and silence. And she said, the variety of their hands is infinite, hands hardened by manual labor, slender hands, a quiver with thought, powerful, nervous hands, hands pitifully defaced by burns. Yeah, and that makes me think of myself, and I I know I've mentioned that to you before, Carrie, about and since COVID, obviously, handshakes aren't, aren't as big of a thing. And, and I'm fine with that. Of course, health it comes first. But yeah. I, do, I did find that handshakes were something I did like in a way because it did give me not being able to see. And I don't, as we mentioned earlier, I don't like touching faces for myself. But <laughs> for me, shaking someone's hand does give me a bit of an idea of their stature and, and just sort of the way that they, would, they are. And I think Helen's quote there really sums up so descriptive on, on how, she, uh, how much she could get from touching all of the, everyone, all those these vets hands and uh and and hands handshakes also they often reveal who's sort of has the upper hand as they say in in an interaction you can tell if somebody you know really grips it hard or is has a has a soft weak kind of handshake you you get a lot from that and so decided people of course but right but i had mentioned japan so maybe elaborate a bit on that Mm -hmm. yeah the u.s sent her there after world war ii to sort of smooth things over after they had to end the war somehow by by, I guess, the fact that they dropped two bombs on Japan. So she went over there with Polly, her her assistant, and she said, jolting over what had once been paved streets, we visited the one grave, all ashes, where 90,000 men, women, and children were instantly killed. We stumbled over ground, cluttered in every direction, foundation stones, timbers, bits of machinery and twisted girders, Polly saw burns on the face of the welfare officer, a shocking sight. He let me touch his face, and the rest is silence. And it was to these people that I made the appeal. 
their affectionate welcome will remain in my soul, a holy memory and a reproach. So it was, a, you know, a, such a, I read that quote and I almost come to tears because it's just, I can't even imagine the scale of such a thing. And that's the kind of thing that war brings, I think. Yeah, so it's like they were kind of trying to send her over there to Japan to sort of, I don't know, justify or make a... Make amends in a way. Make sort of some amends. But She once, was harmless and she was the best person they but thought again, to do But she, again, she had such an independent mind. She got there and she's like, this is, this is ridiculous what happened mm-hmm. here. And, and uh, yeah, so I just thought it was interesting too in the, in the doc. Uh, they, they say that wherever she went, people certainly understood her as an American, but they also understood her as more than that, that she transcended nationhood that she represented what people had in common despite their nationalistic differences so again that just really demonstrates that we all do have things in common even though we we all different in some ways and we have disabilities and all these all these other conditions but we still all have shared similarities so yeah Mm -hmm. so as we wrap up this episode uh, i hope you did learn something you didn't know about her already and i hope it helped you look a little deeper into who she was with her convictions and, you know, her mistakes that she made, like we all make, so. Yeah, lots of information there to, to, to think about. And again, you can go to, the, to pbs.org to, to find the full script uh, from this documentary. I'm not sure if the documentary itself is available anymore here in Canada due to <laughs> certain restrictions, but uh, unfortunately, but hopefully you'll get a chance to watch it someday because it really is a, an incredible piece of uh, work here that needed to get, to get out there in the world, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So by the end of Helen's life, we were coming up to the 1960s here, and she had a few strokes that sidelined her. Polly had died by this point, and she was still dealing with the fact that she never learned to speak. You know, she had these expectations for herself she never quite met. So she said, uh, since my 10th year, I have labored unceasingly to speak so that others can understand me. I have not succeeded completely in realizing the desire of my childhood to talk like other people. Yet I have only partially conquered the hostile silence. It is not a pleasant voice. And it must be just that, it must have been just that voice in the back of her head that always said you need to fit in. And she never quite could. Yeah. And I was always curious back in the day, wondering like, how could, I heard that she did lectures and stuff. And I didn't quite understand that a lot of it was signing and, and Annie and her mm-hmm. and Polly and, and the, her interpreter sort of, you know, projecting that information to the, to the, the crowds. But at the same point, she could speak to a point. And so we're going to, Play a clip here now of Helen and uh, Polly in, in her later years, an exchange between them and uh, Helen's, Helen's voice here. It is not blindness or deafness that burns me in my dust. Others. It is not blindness or deafness that bring me my darkest hours. It is the attitude that I put men in not being able to speak normally. It is the acute disappointment in not being able to speak normally. Longingly, I think how much more good I might have been if I had only acquired natural speech. Longingly, I feel how much more good I could have done if I had acquired normal speech. So in there, there's certain words you can pick out. And the more I hear that, her, the, her speaking there, I can pick out more and more. But you can tell it is really hard for her to speak. And it almost sounds like in her voice, she's really straining and trying so hard to, to get the words out. But again, you, she's never heard these words spoken aside from her very early first 18, 18 months of life where she would have 
picked up a few sounds here and there, right? The, it, you can't, it's pretty much impossible, I think, to speak clearly when you can't hear or see. And that's just unfortunate that she felt so pressured to do that when she still really could communicate. And you've noticed through the, the multiple, multiple quotes we've had throughout today's show that she really was able to communicate and really with great detail, even though she couldn't speak. And it's just a different means of communication. But she really did want to fit in like we all do, too. So it's a it's a tough balance to 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 establish sometimes. I we think. can all and, empathize with that. I'm yeah. sure. So we're coming up to the end of her life here and the end of this episode. She said, blindness with a big B has never interested me. I've always looked on the blind as a part of the whole of society, and my desire is to help them regain their human rights. What I say of the blind applies equally to all hindered groups, the deaf, the impoverished, the mentally disturbed. Again, another bit of a strange phrasing there, mentally disturbed, but it's mm-hmm. different times. and, and uh, yeah, Those so, with mental illness. Yeah, and again... Like so many of her her views, I couldn't agree more here. It's again just, and that's why that's why we were ins- I'm inspired by her because she came before me, and I have to acknowledge that before I can move on and share uh, this space of outlook with others who have more diverse opinions that deserve to be heard just as much. But we have to give her her dues, I think. Definitely, and that's why we went way beyond the uh, the miracle worker story when she was eight years old. Mm-hmm. So the narrator of this documentary we've been featuring today not the audio describer the narrator rebecca alexander who was a who she's a psychotherapist the one with usher syndrome psychotherapist and disability advocate she said the reason why she was inspired by helen is that the defiance is that she would not be defined so helen keller did die on june 1st 1968 yeah she almost turned 88 right yeah she would have been 87 when she when she passed away, but was all just about to turn eighty eight, and yeah, what quite quite the life there. So Carrie, yeah. you have one more quote. You're gonna you're gonna play Helen once more here, and uh, yeah, finish off with a quote. And I found this one really really comforting, even though I struggle with these things myself. But I'm not at the end of my life yet, so who knows, right? But mm-hmm. um, she said, "I cannot understand why anyone should fear death. Life here is more cruel than death." I believe that when the eyes within my physical eyes shall open upon the world to come, I shall simply be consciously living in the country of my heart. And that's a lot of the kind of thing I grew up in with, with my grandmother. She used to tell me stuff like that, that she, she worried about, you know, us in the world, Brian, and how, how we would do in, in, in our lives. But she always had such strong faith in, in God that she always said that, you know, there'd be something else out there. And that's sort of what Helen believed, I guess, in the later years. So I wanted to end by leaving us with one more thought, something to go come away from this episode with. So I'll let you take it away, Brian, as we wrap up today with one more quote from Mr. Mark Twain, also known as Samuel Clemens. The two most interesting characters of the 19th century are Napoleon and Helen Keller. Napoleon tried to conquer the world by physical force and failed. Helen Keller tried to conquer the world by power of mind and succeeded. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com 
slash outlook on Radio Western.